This will be something that's debated for quite some time. But anybody who says that they know for certainty exactly what role China played here, I think is overstating the case. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In February 2021, the military toppled the civilian government of Myanmar, led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Mass protests followed this coup and were brutally suppressed by the military junta. Soon, an insurgency sprang up, which included both pro-democracy groups comprised mostly of the majority Bamar ethnic group, and also a number of militias from Myanmar's many ethnic minority groups. For much of this conflict, the Burmese military, which is sometimes referred to as the Tetmadaw or the less honorific Sittat, had the upper hand. Superior weaponry and air power meant these disparate opposition groups were on the ropes. But things changed, and rather dramatically, in October. A number of these different militias joined forces and in a series of highly coordinated attacks captured a number of strategic towns and roads and garrisons, inflicting heavy losses on junta forces. This offensive, known as Operation 1027 for the day in October in which it was launched, has marked a huge turning point in Myanmar's civil war. Now, the military looks as weak as it ever has in nearly 40 years of on-again and off-again control of Myanmar. The junta's defeat suddenly looks like a real possibility. Joining me to discuss the significance of this military offensive and provide important context for understanding the civil war in Myanmar is Gregory Poling director of the Southeast Asia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We kick off discussing the outbreak of conflict in Myanmar following the 2021 coup. And Gregory Poling does a good job of breaking down the complexities of a civil war that involves a wide number of ethnic armed groups, many of which are now joined in an alliance to defeat the Burmese military. We also discuss the role of China and the United States and whether or not we can expect a collapse of the military junta in the near future. Myanmar's civil war is a really important global story that largely has been pushed from the global headlines because of the crisis in Israel and Gaza. So I was very glad to bring you this extended conversation about significant developments in Myanmar. As always, feel free to reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. I love hearing from you. Let me know if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. Please also sign up for our mailing list. You can do that as well at globaldispatches.org. And as always, a huge thank you to our paying subscribers who make all of this possible. Thank you. 
All right, now here is my conversation with Gregory Poling of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So, Gregory, before we discuss the latest development of this apparently rather successful offensive in Myanmar, can I have you walk through what has happened in Myanmar since the February 2021 coup that helped topple the civilian-led government of Aung San Suu Kyi? Can you just kind of take us up to this October 27th offensive? Happy to. So the way this has been characterized, I think, in a lot of first line of newspapers has just been military versus the spring revolution, the forces of the opposition. It's actually been a lot more complicated and disjointed than that. You've had decades-long civil wars in Myanmar led by what are often called ethnic armed organizations or now ethnic resistance organizations. These are the minority communities based on the peripheries of Myanmar that were forced into this new country upon independence from the British, who never really agreed to it, and have been fighting for independence in some cases since effectively World War II. And then you had the coup in February 2021, which hypercharged a lot of that and added new actors, which were mostly ethnic Burmin or Bamar, the majority ethnicity down the lowlands, who opposed the military. And I think much of what we've seen in the last two and a half years, in addition to obviously opposition to the military, has been a slow and very difficult effort by these two different resistance fronts, the ethnic minority resistance and the pro-democracy Bamar resistance, trying to figure out how they point in the same direction, how they can make their separate equities blend together in a way that that is coherent and effective. And the recent offensive that we'll discuss may well signal a turning point where some critical mass of the EAOs, the ethnic resistance organizations, have decided that they are comfortable enough with the Bamar opposition that they're willing to kind of yoke their futures together, at least for the time being. And it seems that the ethnic majority of Bamar pro-democracy resistance, as you described them, and the ethnic armed groups that have long been fomenting insurgencies in peripheries of Myanmar, you know, their ability to join together, at least from my perspective, seem to have been made much easier by the tactics and brutality employed by the military junta. It seems that what we're seeing might be like a reaction to the kind of sheer brutality of this military regime. I think that's certainly a driver on the Bamar side. So you hear frequent anecdotes over the last two and a half years of particularly young Burman citizens who never really knew the scale of the atrocities committed by the military against ethnic communities saying, now we understand what they've been suffering for decades. Because as the opposition to the military coup spread through the traditional heartland of the Bamar, particularly in Sagang and Magwe regions, which are down in the lowlands, parts of the so-called dry zone, the junta for the really the first time ever used the same kind of indiscriminate 
violence against civilians uh, that it has used since the 40s and 50s up in the highlands targeting the EAOs. And that forged a degree of, I think, sympathy and understanding that's been missing for decades from at least large parts of the Bamar political class. So we are now some two years, over two years, into this coup which led to a civil war. What has been like the general trajectory of the conflict up until this new offensive? There are myriad actors involved in the resistance. To simplify, you can break it into two groups. You have the PDF, the People's Defense Forces, which are generally small, in many cases ill-equipped, local-level resistance forces, many, but certainly not all, loosely affiliated with the National Unity Government, which is more or less a government in exile. They have a small footprint on the border with Thailand, but most of them operate outside of the country. That is more or less the heart of the Bamar armed resistance. There's also the civil resistance captured by the civil disobedience movement where people are not paying their taxes and not showing up to work and so on. And then the second component is the EAOs, the ethnic armed organizations. Some of them have been in this fight since the very beginning of the coup, particularly the Kachin Independence Organization, which operates in the Kachin state named after the ethnic group. The parts of the Karen National Union, and now it seems most of the Karen National Union, which are one of the larger and oldest insurgencies in the country, and the Kareni Nationalized Defense Force, as well as on the other side of the country, the Chin National Organization and a few other Chin groups. So you can think of those four constellations of ethnic groups as those who have been at least supportive, if not working in conjunction with the Bamar opposition for two and a half years. What's changed over the last, let's say, month and a half is that several other EAOs have come off the bench, and particularly some quite powerful EAOs, the Arakan Army in Rakhine State and what's called the Three Brothers Alliance in Northern Shan State, which are the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, also called the Kokong Army, the Arakan Army, which operates in both areas, and the Ta'ang National Liberation Front. And so now you have pretty sophisticated offensives against the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military, on at least three fronts. And that is stretching the military thin, potentially to a breaking point. Yeah. And I do want to talk about the potential that the military, the government, the junta just disintegrates, which is seemingly in the realm of possibility at this point, at least based on analysis I've read. But before we get there, can I just have you explain you know, what is this 1027 offensive and movement so named because it was launched on October 27th? Can you kind of explain to listeners what's been happening and how has this offensive been so successful thus far? So at the top, I should say there's no way to explain this in a way that's not a little confusing given the number of actors involved, but I'll do my best. So Northern Shan State has been probably the area with the largest amount of powerful armed actors in the country for decades. It includes groups like the United Wa State Army, the Democratic Alliance Army, who continue to remain on the bench, and then several other groups, including these three, which make up the Brotherhood Alliance. 
the fact that the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military, didn't really have to dedicate many troops to northern Shan State for the last two and a half years because all of those EAOs maintained their ceasefires or more or less stayed on the bench, allowed it to focus its forces where it needed. So it focused on Kareni State, on Karen State, up in Kachin State, and especially down in the lowlands fighting the Bamar insurgencies in Sagang and Magwe. Well, it seems that at least some of the EAOs in Northern Chan State, those three that I mentioned, the Kokong or MNDAA, the TNLA or Tong National Liberation Army and the Arakan Army, assessed that the two and a half years of grinding civil war have weakened the Tatmadaw to the point that it was opportune to launch their own offensives to, if not fully get on board and coordinate with the opposition, at least to pull in the same direction. And so there seems to have been months of planning by all accounts that went into this offensive, which was suddenly launched on October 27th, thus the name Operation 1027 after the date. They seem to have completely taken the Burmese military, which I'll note, some people prefer not to use the term Tatmadaw because there's a certain honorific to it. So a lot of the ROs mm. use the term Sittat, which in Burmese is a more, I suppose, value neutral term. It's got Daesh versus ISIS sort of thing back in the day. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So they launched these assaults on Burmese military outposts and particularly key military outposts near a lot of the border crossings from northern Shan State into China and had wild success overrunning these positions pretty rapidly. At this point, numbers are hard to get exact, but probably over 150 Sittat military outposts in northern Shan State have fallen to this alliance of three ethnic armed groups. Those ethnic armed groups also had some small components from some other organizations, including a Kareni component, which shows a degree of coordination, at least to some degree, with some of the other armed resistance actors. And that has caused now a domino effect of other offensives. So the Kareni in nearby Kareni state launched their own renewed offensive. There's been fighting for a month around the capital of Kareni state, Loikal, which could potentially fall, which would be the first state capital to fall to the resistance. The Kachin Independence Army, which has always been close to this Three Brothers Alliance, they renewed an offensive in Sagang region with several of their affiliated People's Defense Forces they've been supporting, which, among other things, led to the capture of the first district capital to fall to the resistance. And maybe most importantly, the Arakan Army, in addition to supporting the alliance in northern Shan State, broke what was now a probably year or so long ceasefire in Rakhine State over on the border with Bangladesh and renewed an offensive there. And what we've seen so far is all of these are having a pretty significant degree of success. Morale is really bottoming out by all accounts in the Sittat, and they're simply stretched too thin. They cannot redeploy troops to all of these theaters and hope to reestablish a status quo ante. So these constellations of ethnic armed groups have made really surprising and significant gains as part of this 1027 offensive. This includes, as you mentioned, key border towns with China. Now, I've read a number of reports that at least some of these border towns are hubs of really kind of noxious internet scams and 
that this has complicated China's approach to this conflict. Can you just explain like the illicit activity that's going on there and how that feeds in or fuels the conflict dynamics that we're discussing? Yes, but I want to be clear at the beginning that the role of China here is clearly significant. Whether or not it was determinative is unclear. And I think This will be something that's debated for quite some time, but anybody who says that they know for certainty exactly what role China played here, I think is overstating the case. It's certainly true that China has an enormous amount of influence in what happens in northern Myanmar along its border, particularly in northern Shan State. It's had longstanding connections with many of these EAOs, including the three members of the Brotherhood Alliance, which launched the attack. No, the Kokong are ethnic Chinese, Kokong Chinese by ethnicity. And speak Mandarin, right? Yes, the Kokong Chinese leadership does. Same is true of the Wa State Army's leadership, which is another ethnic armed group, although it's not based around a Chinese ethnicity, based around another ethnicity called the Wa. Many of these broke off from the old Communist Party of Burma, the CPB, which collapsed in 1989 and was supported by the PRC. And so the PRC, in many cases, maintained those party links, economic and military, to the successor armies. So it's, I think, probably right to say that the alliance would not have launched this offensive if it didn't believe that it would get at least tacit support from China. And it's probably fair to say that if China really wanted to force these EAOs at least the Kokong, to uh, the negotiating table, it probably has the leverage to do that. But that's not quite the same thing as many people are saying, which is that China therefore knew about the operation in advance and gave the green light. I'm not sure that's true. But what is clear is that I think the EAOs who launched the offensive smartly jumped on the fact that China was growing increasingly frustrated with the Burmese junta and for its refusal to help China deal with this growing problem of criminality, and especially these cyber scam operations where people are being kidnapped, mostly by Chinese criminal networks operating in the border regions to engage in cyber crimes, targeting, in many cases, Chinese citizens. And so one of the first things that the Brotherhood Alliance did when it took over some of these border crossings was to hand over hundreds of suspects to the Chinese government. And it's noteworthy that almost immediately afterwards, suddenly the junta authorities showed up with hundreds of their own suspects that they presumably could have turned over to China at any point in the last year and hadn't. Stepping back, the broader problem for China is that it, by all indications, Beijing did not know that the military was going to launch a coup in February of 2021. China had maintained pretty positive relations with both the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi and the military. Once the military did launch the coup, China was frustrated. It certainly didn't help China's interests in the country. But China made the same assessment that some of Burma's other neighbors, like India and Thailand, also made, which was that even though the coup was destabilizing, at the end of the day, they assumed the military would eventually win, and therefore they kept the opposition at arm's length and engaged more or less uncritically with the junta. Now the war may well have turned. And China is widely reviled by the opposition across Burma, all of whom assume that China did have a role, not only in supporting the junta in the last two and a half years, but had a role in planning the coup. So 
as it stands now, I mean, it is in the realm of possibility that the Burmese military collapses or is defeated or there's some sort of upheaval or a coup. There is a probability that the junta as we know it no longer exists sometime in the near future. Is that an outcome that you believe is a possibility? And what are the implications of a potential dissolution or disintegration of the Burmese military? It's absolutely a possibility. It's one of several, and I don't know how to put odds on these, but given the scale of the current offensive and by all accounts plummeting morale of the Burmese military, it's not inconceivable to imagine a rapid cascade of unit level surrenders and eventually just a collapse of the military that would then face disintegration, force the generals into perhaps a negotiation from a point of weakness that people wouldn't have imagined before. But it's also possible that the junta falls back, maybe substantially, loses a considerable amount of de facto control over the national territory, but is able to form some kind of new line of control down in the lowlands, continues to control the major urban centers of Yangon, Mandalay, and Navidal. And then this continues as a slow, grinding, years-long insurgency. And there's also a third possibility, which is the one that clearly the junta wants and is trying to signal to some of the AOs, which is that they offer a substantial degree of autonomy and business opportunity and try to basically bribe some of these EAOs back into ceasefires, which had been the divide and conquer strategy that the junta had been using for decades. I don't think that will work in this case. I am among those who believes that something is fundamentally different this time. But I also think that we can't entirely discount the possibility. If the Burmese military does fall, do analysts more broadly, and maybe you specifically, expect that the fall of the Burmese military, the kind of unified enemy that all these ethnic armed groups are fighting against, might signal a turning point after which these groups might turn their guns on each other. That's possible. It's something that I cautioned about a year and a half or so ago when it came to arguments around the provision of lethal assistance by the U.S. or other outside parties. I don't think it's necessarily the most likely outcome. But again, I think, I mean, one, world history and recent world history is rife with examples of disparate resistance actors who, in the absence of a single unifying enemy, then turned on each other. You could particularly imagine this if some of the EAOs declare outright independence rather than seek autonomy within a federal system. But so far, that's not what anybody's saying. All of the AOs, including all the Northern Alliance, or the Brotherhood Alliance, are arguing that they're seeking autonomy within a federal Burma. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that in the absence of the Sittat, these actors would eventually, probably after a long and bruising and you know imperfect process, be able to reach a new political status quo in a really genuinely federal Burma, which was the conception since the 1947 Panglong Agreement that was overturned by the military. 
And the counter argument that you will hear from particularly Burmese military officials, but also some of their supporters in China or India or even other Southeast Asian countries, is that as distasteful and brutal as they may be, only the military keeps the state from disintegrating. But as colleague here, Lucas Myers at the Wilson Center, argued on another podcast of mine just a week ago, it's not the resistance that caused this chaos. It's the military. So who is actually the destabilizing actor here? We should at least, I think, give a benefit of the doubt to the parties who didn't launch a coup and throw this country into two and a half years of utter chaos. How effective have U.S. and international sanctions been in weakening the Sittat or Tatmadaw or Burmese army? All three refer to the same thing, just to remind listeners. And more broadly speaking, what has been the U.S. role thus far? I think sanctions have had a marginal impact, which is about all sanctions ever have. The U.S. and European countries have focused on keeping sanctions targeted at individual military leaders and their families, presumably the hope early in after the coup being that that would help delegitimize those leaders, particularly senior commander General Min Aung and convince, I suppose, others around them to oust them and seek a negotiated settlement. That obviously didn't happen. And so sanctioning individuals doesn't change the structural factors at play in Myanmar. Given the closed nature and the pretty limited amount of particularly U.S. investment in the country, the U.S. had pretty weak financial and economic leverage. And the last thing the administration wanted to do was pass very broad-based sanctions that would end up making the really horrendous humanitarian catastrophe in the country even worse without imposing equal cost on the junta. So the sanctions have remained targeted even as they've slowly expanded. If there's been an effect, arguably, it has been the effort, particularly over the last year or so, to limit the junta's ability to get hard currency for foreign exchange and therefore limit its ability to purchase munitions and jet fuel. Though even there, with China and especially Russia, and even to a degree India, helping arm the junta, that has been a very leaky sieve. So in the coming weeks, because the situation on the ground seems to be changing so rapidly, are there any indicators that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not indeed the the Burmese military is on the verge of collapse? Territorial control is one marker that we on the outside use here because I guess it's the most easy to see and the most easy to quantify. And so we'll continue to watch how much territory, number of towns and, and districts are lost to the resistance. The potential fall of Loikal in Kareni State would be a huge, at least symbolic and real tangible victory for the opposition. That's the state capital in Kareni State, which would mark certainly the largest population center that the resistance was able to take. If we see more EAOs come off the bench and join the fight, and there certainly are other EAOs that continue to maintain distance from both sides, that could mark an acceleration of what might have already been a turning point. And then I suppose if people are looking for the kind of rapid collapse scenario, then they're going to want to see larger units throwing down weapons and 
crossing the lines in mass or the defection of higher level military officials, which people have been looking for for two and a half years and they haven't seen. If we do see that, then that would be a sign potentially of a impending collapse within the junta's ranks. Gregory, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.